You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Good morning, Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? Welcome to another fantastic episode of the Good Morning Liberty podcast. I'm one of the hosts here, Charlie Chuck Thompson. Today's a little bit of a different day because it's a Friday, uh, which means the market's volatile and all kinds of things are going on. And the dude who's usually with me every single day of the week is not here today. And why? Not because he's sick. It's because I am. I've been having a fever and uh, my my girlfriend, my lady, Stephanie, she's had a fever the last couple of days. They won't let us get tested. By the way, we went today and got a negative flu test. So we know it's not the flu, uh, but for some reason they won't test us for anything else. So we don't know whether we've got the COVID or not. However, uh, feeling pretty good, a uh, little bit of a fever, but not too bad. A, you know, a little scratchy throat, but so far so good. And I, I honestly can't tell you, I don't know if I've got it or not. Um, but I do know that we are trying to self quarantine a little bit. That way we don't spread it around too much. Nate's got a wife at home. Um, they, he He's kind of had a fever today, too. So does his wife. So we don't know what's exactly happening. However, it's just a little bit different show today. So what I've got for you is I have our, our speech that we did for Young Americans for Liberty at Vanderbilt. We did this about a month ago. Um, we've been looking for a time to release it. And what better day today when we have an unexpected day uh, where work was a little bit different. And we weren't able to uh, come together to do the show. So I hope you guys really enjoy this interview. Before I get to this, before I play the interview for you, I'm sorry, it's not an interview. Before I play the speech for you that we gave to the Young Americans for Liberty organization at Vanderbilt University, before I play you that speech, um, I want you guys to do a couple things for me. First of all, subscribe to the podcast, please. We've been telling you guys this. Our numbers keep going up every single uh, every single week, every single day, uh, we look, the audience size is growing. It's really cool to see that you guys are sharing the show, that you guys are subscribing. We have a 92% subscription rate. So you eight percenters out there, that's who I'm talking to. We need to get that number up 99%. So do your part, subscribe to the podcast. It's free. There's nothing you have to do. It's just free. And then share the show with a friend. If you think that this show is spreading the message of the good old Liberty, what you truly believe in the free market, capitalism, the true free market, not government regulated, bogus free market. We're talking about the true free market here. If you truly believe in that, then share the show with a friend. And we appreciate you guys doing all that. We appreciate you guys listening. I want to also tell you about the trading class that we have going on today. We Nate and I did take some trades today. It was an up and down market. The The market's down again. The Dow dropped almost a thousand points. It tried to rally back a little bit at the end of the day, but still then it plummeted. And we are getting close to the numbers that we have marked out before. Um, the Dow is now down. Uh, I was looking earlier. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, I believe it's down close to 19,000 points. If we get down to 18,000, I think it's at 19,100, somewhere around there, maybe 19,2. If we get down to that 18,500 mark, that puts us back to November of 2016 when Trump took office. So 
every gain that the stock market's made, it's lost about 35 to 36% right now. Uh, we'll be down, if we're down 8, 17, or I'm sorry, if we're down about 18,000 points on the Dow, then we've lost about 40% from the record highs that we saw just a month ago. And so if you want to understand what's happening in the markets, if you want to understand how to read a candlestick chart, if you want to understand the moves that the market's making, where you can make money, if you want, if you've lost money in your 401k and you're like, I want to understand what's going on with my money. I want to be in control of my wealth. I want to be in control of my income. Then you need to go to mastermytrades.com. We are running a free trial. It's seven day, a seven day free trial. You get access to all the course material that we have up there. This will teach you the very basics. It'll tell you, you know, what's a volume weighted moving average, which is the VWAP. What is the moving averages? What's a moving average to begin with? What is volume? You know, what is price action? What is a, what happens when a candlestick has a giant wick on it? Whatever, whatever you want to know about trading. If you've never even seen the markets, we take you back to the very basics. We teach you psychology. We teach you terminology and it is the best value that you're going to find out there. There are classes that are selling for 200, 500, $5,000 a month on this stuff. And you can get it for as little as $47 a month. And again, you get that seven day free trial. So I'm telling you, there's no reason not to sign up. You go to mastermytrades.com. It'll take you to the Liberty Trading Academy. And this is where you can learn everything there is to know about trading. And worst case scenario, you sign up for seven days, you get it for free, you learn all the information and you jump out. There's no hassle in canceling this. You, you get the free trial. We, we actually had one person sign up, cancel right away, and you still get access for those seven days. And that's fine. If you want to do that, that's okay. You can sign up, cancel right away. No big deal. Learn as much as you can. Uh, and then if you want to come back, we're still holding the class. There's three different tiers and it starts for as little as $47 a month. So I'm telling you, if you want to understand what's happening during this, this financial collapse, you have to go to mastermytrades.com, get in on the information. We do weekly live Q and A's. Uh, there's also one-on-one -on -one coaching available. I mean, you, there's so much access and a community that we're building for people to be understand the markets that you have to go to mastermytrades.com and be a part of the Liberty Trading Academy. All right. So I hope you guys enjoy the speech that we gave to the Young Americans for Liberty. We talked a lot about uh, socialism. We talked a lot about the candidates back in the day. Uh, this again, this was a month ago, but it was a really good speech. We had really good engagement from the students, a lot of questions from them at the end of the show. Uh, so I, I hope you guys enjoy this and if you do uh, go ahead and leave us a rating and review and share the show with a friend uh, until then if you guys do all that we'll be back again on Monday hopefully to start this all over again until then I hope you guys have a good day and a good morning Liberty anyway welcome uh, my name is Charlie and I'm part of the good morning Liberty podcast we run a media company as well as two other companies um, every single day this is my business partner and best friend Nate Thurston and we believe in liberty so much, we do everything that we possibly can to advance liberty everywhere we go. Um, and there's a couple important things that we want to talk to you all about tonight, y'all, y'all. And um, uh, one, of, one of those being, how do we advance liberty? What is the liberty movement? What does that look like? And then, which you guys know very well, being a part of the Young Americans for Liberty organization. And on top of that, the other thing is, uh, what's our why? Like, why are we advancing liberty? What, what does it mean for us to do that? that guy and on the way in. he did, he did. Mm -hmm. And as polarizing as things seem today, 
between, let's say, the, the Democrats and the Republicans, at least in America, or people like to classify the left and the right, uh, what are we doing as libertarians or liberty-minded people, whether we're neither right or left, let's say, uh, to advance the ideas of people being as free as they possibly can be for the most prosperous society? Yeah, so <clears throat> one thing that we like to talk about is actually living out your principles. You know, we talk a lot about all the things that would be great if we had a libertarian society. I don't know what, you know, political affiliation you guys have. Let's just say liberty-minded, more voluntary society. You know, so we talk a lot about that. Um, today, actually, on our podcast, we talked about what it would be like if we actually acted that out. Like I mentioned, the road going to my house has a ton of trash and stuff on the side of it. I think we're going to order some reflective vests and put the word libertarian on it, and I'm going to try to get a group of people to go around and pick that up. So we can say, we can talk about how uh, we, don't need the, we don't need these taxes for this. We don't need the government to take care of this. People will come together and take care of it. And one of our goals is to try and show people that that's a real thing and it's not just a hypothetical and that they don't we don't have to sit here and wait for the government to get out of our way to do things voluntarily uh, around the country so helping people out as much as you can uh doing something that you think would be removed if your state or local or or federal government were not taking care of it uh, just being people that are actually uh showing that this is not just some kind of this is not a pipe dream this is not just some kind of you know, utopia that could never exist. Not just Utopias can't exist. <laughs> but, um, you know, something that people would actually get out and do. So if you ever see any little opportunities like that, we, we recommend doing that, whether that's helping a homeless person on the street, you know, give them a couple bucks, something like that. You know, no, no one forced you to do that. Picking up some kind of trash, doing, doing anything like that. So, so that's one of the things, is actually taking action and showing people uh, that libertarians... One, we don't just care about ourselves because that's one of the main things that people would think about libertarians. I slipped up actually earlier when he asked me why liberty. The very, per the very first thing I said was because I own myself. And so I, I answered my very first thing was, was that, self-ownership. The actual reason for liberty, the big, the big scope of the whole thing is because a liberty-minded mindset, a libertarian mindset, this ideology and this free market economics is actually the best thing for the most amount of people. And I think we all, we all probably know that. Uh, a lot of people don't see that. When they see us talking about libertarianism, small government, axing all these federal programs, a lot of times it can come across as don't take my stuff don't take things from me this is mine i own i own myself and so you come you come across as someone who really all you're worried about is is helping yourself and making sure that no one's taking things from you when you look at the bigger why of the whole situation it's really big like it's a really big why you would care about this we know a lot about about the history of the world and what's happened when you allow governments uh, central planning to take over an entire economy so that's actually the, the bigger why. Hey, what's up? <laughs> so we know a lot about what happens when we allow these central planners to take over. And so you can try and take the moral high ground when you're someone who's arguing that I want to help people, therefore I want to tax the rich or I want to take out the, the wealthy or I want to create all these programs. And you can try to be on the moral high ground and talk about how you're a better person and you want to help people. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, <clears throat> whether it seems like it or not, 
we're the only people who are actually proposing an ideology that would truly help the most amount of people. And it doesn't sound like it because it's really complicated. You can't get the entire ideology out in one tweet. So it's very difficult. You can't say we will do this and we're going to take money from them and then everything's going to be okay. Like a, like a Bernie Sanders would be able to. So ours is difficult. We need like, you know, a, a 10 or 20 books to get our entire ideology out there. But you can really boil down the whole ideology to self-ownership, to, to being able to grow an economy by allowing people to be as free as possible. We've seen the examples of this happening all, all over the place. We've got massive proof that this is the best way to, to run things, even though you're not technically running things, you're allowing the people to be free and, and make a better life for themselves. So when, we're talk, when we talk about any of this stuff, you're debating online, keyboard warrioring, you gotta remember the why, the why liberty, why this, and you gotta remember, this sounds arrogant, but at the end of the day, no matter what the argument is, if you're arguing that people are not owned by other people and that they should have self-ownership over themselves unless they are hurting people or taking their stuff, if you're arguing that, then you're right. You're, you're right about what you're arguing, no matter what the emotional argument is that's being thrown at you. And you can't make a valid argument that says that I don't have the right to be an individual and have ownership over myself. There's not an argument that anyone can make that makes that okay. When you allow that argument to take place, who gets to draw the line on it? That's the problem. The line gets moved all over the place. We've seen that line moved constantly throughout history. When you allow that line to exist, how, you know, how do I allow people to have a certain amount of ownership? Then you're just swaying back and forth with whoever's in control of that government. So remember when we're talking to these people online, you're, you're a democratic socialist. Remember what the why is and remember uh, somewhat arrogantly that, that you're right about what you're talking about and defend it from that standpoint and don't let them take the moral high ground over it because you are the one that's actually on the moral high ground in this argument. Even if it sounds like they have the moral high ground, they, they don't. We've, we've got the proof. Uh, we, we've, we've got the proof that allowing people to to grow their own lives, to own, to own themselves, is actually what's best for all of humanity. We did a podcast episode today talking about the amount of people that have been lifted out of poverty in the last couple hundred years. It's insane. Have you guys seen the numbers of, of how many people have been escaping uh, abject poverty? It was 94% of the world in the year 1820 was in, was in what we classify as abject poverty today. It was 36% in the year 1995 we're still in that abject poverty, and it's down to 9.6%, actually lower than that, because that number's from 2015. Mm -hmm. It's lower than that today. You've never seen a country that had free markets and individual liberty over that time frame. You've never seen the lot of the ordinary individual go down during that time. It's only, it's only been up. Where you've actually seen everything get way worse for everyone has been in the countries that, that have tried some of these ideas that everyone's talking about right now and a couple that sparks a couple things in my mind because a lot of times you'll see the argument like oh well somalia has that's a libertarian society well no it's not it's run by tyrannical warlords that's not the same thing as a libertarian society or or a liberty-minded society where people are free to exchange goods and services and be as free as possible. So that's a terrible example that they bring up all the time. The other thing I would say too is 
knowing that you're right and having the actual moral high ground in the, in the situation, it's not enough just to be right. Nate and I did a breakout session at Young Americans for Liberty in Detroit. We actually went back and looked at the data of personality types. And this is very interesting. We found that between the four major personality types uh, from Myers-Briggs, that 90% of the population actually thinks emotionally, right? So what does that mean? What does it mean when somebody thinks emotionally, right? They think about how things affect them. They're usually in the moment, how they feel about something. Like, well, I just don't, I don't feel like anybody should have a billion dollars, you know? That's emotional logic, right? Whereas 10% of the population is more of the logical thinking, thinking and then actually what constitutes a libertarian, there's only about 3% of people that have that personality. And what do you know? We get 3% of the vote. So it all kinds of lines up. And so we talked a lot about, you know, when you have the moral high ground and you are right in the situation, it's not enough just to be right because people don't relate to that logic because they don't think that way. And so when we're advancing the ideas of liberty, we have to be able to relate to people who think in a different way, which means we need to change our message. We don't have enough people in the liberty movement because our messaging is wrong, not because they don't think the way we do, because they're never going to think the way we do, right? And so what we have to do is kind of shift our messaging and find ways where we relate to people. And so how do you change hearts and minds? How do you get people to join the liberty movement? I remember we had a student in Detroit who was asking a question after we got done with our breakout session. He said, you know, I, I talk to people on campus and they walk by and I ask them like, hey, do you believe in liberty or hey, do you like liberty? And I'm like, that's the wrong question, right? Because they don't care. Nobody cares when you say the word liberty. And I told him, you're asking, you're asking the wrong question. When people walk by, ask them if they like living in a cage, because now you have something that they can picture in their mind. You have something relational to open up a conversation about. Because the opposite of liberty is living in a cage, right? We say all the time on the podcast what, what Democrats and Republicans want both because everybody's searching for security, right? That we're all trying to be, we're all trying not to not to die, right? We don't want our kids to die or our family to die. So we joke all the time on the podcast about how everybody's just trying to build a prison. <laughs> you want walls and you want only the guards to have guns and you want three meals a day and you want shelter uh, and you want the security and the safety and all that and you get your your work time, you know, you get work leave, and then you come back to your prison and everybody's safe and nobody dies, right? From what I hear in our political talks, a prison is the ideal society that everyone's talking about so far. They've got, it's got every single thing that everyone's asking for. So I, I don't want that. I just don't want it, man. So, so when it comes to relating to people, especially, it, you know, it's easy to pick on the extreme left right now because they're so tyrannical and socialist. So it's easier to pick on them, although you see some of it from the right as well. I mean, populism is not anything to shake a stick at, I would say. But when it comes to talking to any of the, I, I would say, Republican socialist or Democratic socialist, the ones who want giant government, they just want their form of giant government, right? When it comes to talking to them, you have to relate to the actual problems. And one easy one is healthcare, because healthcare is too expensive. It's a big problem. A really big problem. People can't afford their medicine. They can't afford to go to the doctor. If you do go to the doctor, you get these astronomical bills. Um, I just recently had surgery in January on my ear. I had an issue with uh, a growth inside my ear that had to be removed. Um, and I ended up paying cash for it because it's cheaper than trying to do it on insurance and things like that. Because you can actually, one, one other company that we actually run is a healthcare company. We develop software 
that helps healthcare companies uh, become more efficient uh, in on the billing side of things because it is so convoluted and there's so many regulations and there's so many hoops to jump through. I mean, there are entire buildings. In fact, the new HCA building that's on Charlotte, almost, I would say, I think 10 floors of that building are just full of people trying to collect on claims. I mean, think about the amount of money that goes in to just buildings full of people trying to collect claims because it's so difficult, right? So we understand the healthcare side of the argument. And so when people on the left, when people like Bernie Sanders or even even Trump with the replace, repeal and replace Obamacare because it was a disastrous piece of legislation, um, healthcare is a big problem. And so you can relate to somebody in that on the issues, and then you can start to talk to them uh, and almost validate their emotional feelings towards things and beat them with the right answers. And so there are very specific things that we can go into, and I'll give just give you a few examples. Uh, Nate knows this one really well because also his wife actually works for HCA. So there's uh, about 200,000 pages of size 8 font of regulations in the healthcare industry. Each page has three columns on it. Yeah, and each and page has three columns. Yeah. So 200,000 pages. We don't even know how many regulations there are. Nobody can actually count they count them. count it in pages. They count it okay. in pages, over 200,000 pages. And, and a few of those, if you look at the history, we're also students of history because I, I love what you know, Patrick Henry said, in his give me liberty or give me death speech, it, that wasn't the greatest line, in my opinion. My gr The greatest line to me is he said, I know, he said, I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of history. I know no way of judging the future but by the past. And what he's saying there is, at the time, he was talking about the British and them sending armies, and he's like, oh, my God, if you think about history, anytime somebody sends armies, they're not your friend, right? And so we don't, since we can't predict the future, what do we have to base it off of, right? History. And so it's very important to be a student of history and understand how these policies played out and things like that. So when you go back and you look at history and the charts, you can see that although me uh, medical expenses started to come up after about 1910 because of a few different reasons, it really skyrocketed after Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, since 1965 and Medicare and Medicaid was passed, the cost has gone up astronomically. It's unbelievable. Thousands of percents. <clears throat> And it's too expensive. So we can agree with somebody there. You can relate to somebody and be like, man, I feel your pain. You know, my dad spends about $1,200 a month on insulin. It's insane. That should never cost that much. And so you, but you have to get to the why. Nobody wants to ask why. You have people like Bernie Sanders that say, we're the only developed nation in this world that doesn't have free health care. You know, that, that's not an argument, right? There's, no, there's nothing to back that up. And so you can start to relate to people in that way and say, okay, Yes, healthcare is too expensive. Have we ever asked why? Has anybody ever asked why the cost went up so high? Because there it's has greed, to be a right? reason. It's just greed. And it's not just greed. Yeah. That's where you can start to open up the conversation. So to give you a few examples just on healthcare specifically, uh, obviously Medicare and Medicaid is a huge one in 1965. Um, so I work on the billing side of healthcare, and I understand um, a lot of the regulations, obviously, because I develop software that helps other companies deal with those regulations. So we have to understand those regulations to make those healthcare companies more efficient. And so a lot of times what you see is insurance will, insurances and Medicare and Medicaid, they'll deny almost everything. Everything you submit, denied. They have uh, rules called like untimely filing is a great example, which means if you don't submit your bill to the payer, Medicare or Blue Cross Blue Shield, whatever, whoever your insurance is through, if the healthcare company doesn't submit the bill to them in, time, in enough time, 
then they'll just say, I'm not paying it. Or another great example is some say your grandmother or grandfather went into the hospital with a broken hip. Okay. And they perform, perform surgery. They fixed your loved one and that person went home and they didn't follow doctor's instructions and they re-injured their hip. If they come into that hospital with the same exact diagnosis, Medicare and insurance companies say that they're not going to pay for it because whether or not the patient is negligible in the incident doesn't matter. They blame the healthcare company. And then I'll let Nate talk about certificate of need because this is the other one that just absolutely <clears throat> blows my mind that it even exists. Well, one of the so uh, it's one a lot of people don't know about. There's some called certificate of need. Tennessee has this. There's about 32, 38 states that have a certificate of need. It's a state law, not a federal law. So that's states can be tyrannical too. It's it's not always not always just automatically good. In Tennessee, if you want to add on to your healthcare company whatsoever, if you want to put one more bed in your hospital. Um, up until a couple of years ago, if you wanted to buy a new MRI machine, if you wanted to build a new building, you had to get a permit from the state to be able to do that. Another bed in your hospital that you have to get a permit to be able to do it. It, it, it makes no sense. Like Whether not even not the market demand. It doesn't matter. It doesn't so matter. the crazier part about that is that when you submit for that permit, your competition has the right to take you to court and challenge your right to get the permit. And that's something that happens all the time. My wife is a financial analyst for HCA, and she was working on a CON for HCA. They were wanting to put a new ER unit, a freestanding ER unit in Brentwood. They spent a year in court trying to get the right to build the building in Brentwood. They were being fought by St. Thomas, I think. They were, St. Thomas was fighting them in court, telling them that there was no need for them to build that new unit. Let, for, let them decide that. They're the ones that are putting the money into it, right? Like, a, So there's obviously something dirty going on here when your competition can take you to court. If you wanted to build a new restaurant and McDonald's could sue you and take you to court and say that there wasn't a need for a new restaurant in the area, everyone would, would agree that that is completely insane. Everyone would agree with that. But yet we have it in healthcare. They spent a year trying to get a CON approved through the state of Tennessee for this new building. And guess what? It didn't get approved. They spent tens of millions of dollars in it in litigation trying to get it approved and they they didn't get to do it if who they, pays for that who pays for it <laughs> the patients who go to all of their other facilities that's who pays for it and the crazy thing is is if the building would have been built it would have already started tens of millions of dollars in the hole just because of litigation to try to get the right to build the building not even not even having to worry about the material cost for building it or anything like that so con laws are an amazing thing to talk about with say a Sanders supporter, because this is something we did at Politicon. We did a live podcast and we talked and took questions from people. Every Bernie Sanders supporter I talked to agreed that that is a ridiculous law. That makes no sense whatsoever. You tell them, do you want uh, Walmart to be able to challenge your local retail store in court and say that you should not be allowed to build a new building? They'll all agree that that's insane. Everyone will. So there's one already, you can get a concession on that right there. What Charlie said with people denying everything, and you got to realize the insurance companies, while they're obviously not perfect, they operate off of the rules that Medicare has set in place for payments. Medicare sets all of the standards, and then the insurance companies just work off of all the rules that Medicare has because there's legal precedent for all of them. So that's what they operate off of. If you go into the hospital and you have a stroke and then you have more complications and then you, you 
you have to stay there for a week. Well, they've got something that's called the geometric length of stay that's calculated in Medicare. If you had a stroke, this is how many days you should be in the hospital. If you stay more than that amount of days, they will not pay for it. They pay for the two days that you're supposed to be there. If you have an, an unlimited amount of complications involved with it, they pay the two days. That's it. So what do hospitals have to do? They have to make sure that they get enough money in those two days to cover any possible thing that could ever go wrong. And so that's why they, there's so many obvious things inside of the healthcare industry when you remove any type of free market competition, free market pricing whatsoever, that make it way too expensive. And this whole idea of making this an emotional conversation, like Charlie said, with the Myers-Briggs test. Have you guys ever taken any Myers-Briggs stuff? It's really interesting. You, sh you should take one. You'll read it and you'll be like, oh my God, that's, that's crazy. That's right. That's me. So 90% of the country thinks on how they, how they feel. They act on how they feel. So when they hear Bernie Sanders say this many people are dying from lack of health care or this is too expensive and people can't afford it, all of the logic and all of the critical thinking and all of the long-term, any of that, you guys know from talking to some of these people, it all goes out the window. None of it matters whatsoever. It's based on your emotion about the subject. Math doesn't matter at that point in time. It does not matter. Money doesn't matter. None of it. What you've got to do is you've, instead of trying to convince people to completely change their personalities and completely change the way that they think, and change everything about themselves until the time that you've met them at this moment. You've got to find a way to construct this libertarian argument in a way that speaks to their personality. And we can do that. There's so many emotional arguments when it comes to this. Now they've tried to write off history that you can't even convince some of these people that 100 million people have died from socialism and communism anymore. They, they, literally everyone will deny that. You know, it's, it's all just been written off. A lot of it doesn't exist. Well, it's, I had a guy on Instagram tell me, oh, I bet you think 100 million people died from socialism and communism. I was like, all right, man, I'll bite. What is it? He's like, it's not 100 million. It's, it's actually 20 million. I'm like, okay, is that your point? Like, is that, is that better? Oh, it's only 20 million. Therefore, socialism is a great idea. Thank you for making that point to me, sir. I, I really appreciate it. I've changed my entire ideology now. So you have to come in and instead of expecting them to think like you do we've got to all learn how to talk to these people we've got to, to these people we've got to learn how to talk to everyone who thinks like this okay i got to do it too right i'm not good at talking when i get worked up i i'm i can be a especially, I can be when, a you dick. Know, especially when you know you're right <laughs> when you know you're right you guys ever been in an argument with someone a loved one uh, you know a girlfriend or boyfriend and you guys are in an argument and you know deep down that you're probably right about this and, and the other person is wrong. Now, fighting them tooth and nail, being a, just a complete hard ass about it, just being a brick wall and not making any concessions whatsoever and telling them that they're an idiot and everything they think is wrong and this is the, you know, completely stupid. Where are you going to get with that? You're going to get a nice spot on the couch. That's, that's where you're going to get. But if you make a few concessions, try to see it from where they're coming from. Try to explain how you feel from an emotional standpoint. Why do I? Well, I'm not a libertarian because I'm a, a selfish SOB. I'm a libertarian because I care about people. That's why I'm a libertarian. That's why I care about this stuff. You think I don't care about people? I, this is why I care about liberty is because I care just like you do about helping other people. I just have a completely different way of going about it. So 
that was pretty much what our talk was with the Yale students in, uh, in, in Detroit. And I think that that is a, a, a really big part of what we all need to do. Realize you're not going to change the personalities of 90% of the world's population. It's just, it's not going to have, that's part of who they are. It's a part of who all of us are. They're not going to change the way you think about things, no matter what the emotional argument is, probably. And you're not going to change the way that they think. So you got to find a way, instead of us little 3% people coming out and forcing them to think like we do, we got to find a way to make all the emotional arguments. It's like, uh, have you guys listened to Jordan Peterson at all? You know, he makes the lobster argument. That's what that reminded me of when he said, you know, when you're fighting with a loved one or a significant other, like, do you really want to defeat them? Because then you're living with a defeated lobster. <laughs> and, and so it's the same thing when we're talking to people we disagree with or, or um, uh, anybody that we're trying to change their hearts and minds, right? We don't, the goal isn't to defeat them. You know, you see, I know they go viral and they're awesome, but Ben Shapiro destroys leftist, liberal, transgender, <laughs> you know, crazy person, right? Or whatever. They, they have all these acronyms and stuff that they describe people with and adjectives. And it's like, that, that's not really, that doesn't win anybody over for the most part, right? It solidifies the people who already think that way. Right. You're probably not going to win anyone over with that type of abrasive, uh, I don't know, that kind of abrasive talking. So, so you have to think of how do I, how can I approach somebody or have a conversation where we advance liberty that's re, that can relate to that person. So you have to meet them where they are. That's one of the biggest things. And it's what we try to do on our show every single day. Of course, it's easy to get into that, what the, the, the cyclone of being upset and angry and, and all of that stuff. And, and you want to just complain about shit. That's, it's easy to get into that place. But what you really want to focus on is making sure that you can make your argument relational to where that person is most of the time from an emotional side. And a lot of times liberty minded people or libertarians get a bad rap because you see a lot of people in the liberty movement that come at this from a, a uh, I don't want to pay any more taxes or, or I'm tired of doing all of this instead of where we really should come at this from is it is actually the best ideology to help the most amount of people be as free and prosperous as they possibly can be, because that's the actual truth of it. When, when you talk to somebody about healthcare and they say, oh, well, I don't mind paying a little bit more in taxes if, you know, that sick, if the six month old kid with cancer can be saved, because they always make it that emotional story that no one wants six month old babies to die. That's not, no one wants that unless you're a psychopath, which is about 5% of the population. So <laughs> there could be those few people out there, but no one wants that. It's like being against poverty. Everyone's against poverty. That's easy. But, but what we argue for, it's not that we just don't want to pay taxes. It's that we think people being able to keep more of their own money makes them more prosperous because that's what history shows. That's what countries who follow the free market principles actually show. We're going to get into a little bit of Denmark and Sweden and all the Nordic countries that Bernie says he wants us to follow, but he actually, none of his policies emulate them whatsoever. They all, all of his policies and Elizabeth Warren and all of them, they emulate policies in Venezuela. So do we really want America to be Venezuela 
Or do That's we, not just a crazy talking point, by the way. I actually went through every single one of Venezuela's policies and then lined them up next to all of Denmark's, and then I put Bernie's in the middle of both of them. And Bernie's policies were actually closer to all of the policies in Venezuela than they were to the policies in Denmark. Right. And so, so we have to, we have to be relational to people. We're going to get into that, but first, I, I want to talk a little bit more about personal responsibility because what what is a liberty movement and where is it going? Right? Is it is it all these people who are just blowing a bunch of smoke and talking about things, or or are we actually trying to build a movement? Uh, get people elected like Young Americans for Liberty is doing, and we're actually trying to change the course of our society and culture. And so I want to ask you guys a question. TikTok. I want to ask you all a question, and this is free free to answer however you want. Be honest. Uh, would any of you guys say that you waste any amount of time during the week? Raise your hand. Yeah. Okay, how many would you say you on average you waste 10 hours a week? Yeah? Could be playing video games or whatever. It doesn't matter. So, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's technically you could say forty hours in a work week, but really it's a. Uh, Someone give me a number on that. He means all of them. All of all yeah. of the hours. Yeah. Sunday. Yes. Sunday to Saturday. So on average, ten hours a week. All of you would say that you waste about ten hours a week. How many would say you waste twenty hours a week? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Four out of five. How many would you say you waste 30 hours a week? One. Still wasting time up there. I see it. Yeah. No. <laughs> and so the reason I ask you this, because you're all college students, right? And you're going to Vanderbilt. And so it's a pretty prestigious university. It doesn't matter what you do in life. On average, and especially as we get richer as a country, on average, those who go to university students will make, you're going to make on average about Fifty to a hundred dollars an hour as you start to grow in life, and so if you do the arithmetic on the amount of time that you waste over your lifetime, it becomes a significant amount of money, and that's just showing you the money side of the time that you waste. So, and I'm not saying that you can't waste time. I waste plenty of time. I just want you to be aware of the time that you do waste and what could you be doing that either advances liberty or becomes more productive so that you can advance liberty further during those times, right? And so that's a great experiment to run to look at your life and be like, okay, instead of playing video games for 30 hours this week because I waste 30 hours every single week playing video games, maybe I'll just play 25 hours and I'll take five hours and do something productive, right? And so that what is that doing? That's taking the personal responsibility to ultimately live out your principles. And this has another application to it is we all have heroes, right? And, and why do we have heroes? Like if you could think about anyone in your life, whether it's somebody close to you or it's somebody that's a famous athlete or a star, or maybe it's somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. Why are they heroes? Why did people follow them? Did they follow them because of what those, the, the people said in part, maybe, but why did they really follow them? Well, they wanted to emulate their heroes. Why do you want to emulate your heroes? Why do you want to be like your heroes? Because they actually live out what they believe. And so that part of taking personal responsibility for advancing the movement of liberty, it starts with you. And it starts with you. And it starts with you and you and you. It starts with everybody in here. It starts with us living out the actual principles of liberty so that when it comes time 
for people to ask you like, hey, you know, we see in the media all of this turmoil, like, well, how is your life different? You know, what are you, like, what are you doing? You're actually living out and proving the principles of liberty in your own life. And you're making yourself better and your family better. And then ultimately you can extend out into your community. And if we get everybody in the liberty movement to do that, how, how, we, how could we change the world? It would be astronomical. And so it's not good enough to just talk about these things. You have to take the personal responsibility into your own life, examine where you're at and say, okay, if I'm wasting 10 or 20 or 30 hours a week, what could I do to, re to take an hour, listen, one hour a week, put it, focus it on something. And we have, we talked to, we interviewed Jason Stapleton the other day. We have a similar thing, but I like what he said. He calls it the 1% rule. It's like if each day you're 1% better than who you were yesterday, well, over a year, what happens over a year? I mean, you have 365% of compounded interest. This year, 366% because we're in a leap year. <laughs> so if you're just a little bit better each day and you examine your life and you can think about where can I take some personal responsibility? How can I advance the ideas that I so strongly believe in? It's not good enough to just talk about them. We actually have to take action. One thing I love about Young Americans for Liberty, and we talk about them all the time, is it is an organization that actually takes action. They're not like Cliff Maloney and the organization that they have built is unbelievable. The operation went at the door. These are actionable steps that you can take to actually advance liberty. And so it is amazing to be a part of this organization, but also examine your own life and see, okay, how can I live out these principles in my own life to, um, if it's money, like, okay, how can I be as rich as I possibly can be? Not for yourself, not to, so you can buy big houses and fancy cars, although there's nothing wrong with that if you want to do that. But also, like, how can I help my family and help my community? How can I actually give to charity and live out those principles and say, we don't need government help because we can take care of our own. So we actually have to prove that concept out. Um, and that's part of the per personal responsibility that we have to take to advance liberty. So liberty starts with you. It starts with us. Uh, one thing I want to do, by the way, I think I was going to say earning a lot of money and being rich there's a good way to look at earning a lot of money. I have the, I have the feeling that I want to be the world's first trillionaire. That's my, that's my goal. That's ridiculous, right? But hey, if I've hit 10% of that, I'll probably be okay. It'll be okay. <laughs> I like what money says. It's not that like you were able to, in a free market, I like what money says. If you make money in a free market, it means that you provided something that someone thought was more valuable than the money that they gave you. And so therefore, if you're worth a lot of money, it means that you have provided at least $1 more than that to society in some kind of way. So I don't like looking at a lot of wealth as long as it was made freely and free of regulation and laws and all of that. I don't like looking at a lot of money and saying that that is in any way a bad thing because anyone who is worth an honest billion dollars where they have not forcefully taken that from anyone provided at least a billion and one dollars worth of value to other people's lives. So we need to change the way that we think about money it, itself. Everyone's always heard, you go into Starbucks, you give them $5 for a cup of coffee. It means that you thought the coffee was more valuable than $5. It also means that Starbucks thought that your $5 was more valuable than a cup of coffee. Both people won in that transaction. You didn't lose out because you got something that you thought was more valuable than the $5 that you gave them. Therefore, that $5 that they made is something that added value into your life. So that's when I see rich people and I think about trying to be wealthy, I look at it as, man, that must mean that I have provided a lot of value to other people's lives.
that that that's the way that I look at it. And one thing I want to do with you guys, if you guys want to, I want to steel man some of our arguments here. You guys have any leftist <laughs> talking points? Anything you hear from your, uh, you know, Bernie local your uh, your local Bernie Bros. Um, that you have to constantly fight against all the time. And I wanted all of us to kind of go over what some of the best arguments might be to a couple of those things. If any of you guys have a specific one, what you got? Uh, one of my friends always brings up wealth inequality as a huge issue, but I, like, my usual response is like, why should I care? Yeah. So wealth inequality. What's funny is that when I imagined asking that, that is the very first one I imagined would get brought up. So whatever percentage of all of the new wealth has gone to whatever percentage of the people, right? Whatever it is that they're talking about. Like you, I don't care about that at all. Um, money is not a fixed pie. We don't have a zero-sum game going on. If we did, then we'd have, um, you know, about a million dollars in circulation right now. So obviously there's new wealth created all the time. So first off, thinking that because someone else has a lot of wealth, it meant that other people can't have it. It's just a fallacy on its own right there. Secondly, let's talk about Jeff Bezos worth $130 billion. 85% um, of Jeff Bezos' wealth is in his ownership of Amazon. Uh, he doesn't actually have $130 billion. He's got in some mattresses. <laughs> he's, got, he's got some stocks that say that his technical asset value is $130 billion, but he doesn't have that cashed out. I'm sure he's got plenty of money. Not saying he's hurting or anything like that. But he doesn't actually have $130 billion. He couldn't have it anyway, because if he announced he was going to sell all of his Amazon stock, the stock would completely crash, and he would not be able to cash out $130 billion. It would, it would completely crash. This happened when uh, Mark Zuckerberg announced that he was going to, I think, take out a billion dollars worth of stock of what he owned in, in Facebook. Just him saying he was going to withdraw a billion dollars worth of his stock caused Facebook stock to drop out 15% when he said he was going to do it. So, so he actually lost like 20 billion. Yeah, he actually lost a lot of money <laughs> in the effort to try and take out that billion. Right. The same thing would happen if Jeff Bezos decided he was going to cash out his $18 billion worth of Amazon stock. The stock would completely crash. His net worth would probably go down to maybe 20 billion, and that's what he would get out. So first off, the $130 billion number is not a liquid cash asset, actual physical number anyway. The other thing to remember is that that wealth is not tied to the profits that Amazon has made. I know Amazon's profitable now, but since Amazon's inception, they are positive about $40 billion net. That's what they're positive. They lost money for most of the time that they existed, and their positive net is about 40 to $50 billion in total that they have profited off of their business, yet they're worth a trillion dollars. So the stock market is not always tied to what you've actually made in profits. It's tied to how many people thought that they wanted to put money into your stock. That's not money he's taken from other people through profits. That's money that people's retirement accounts have freely put money into, and his net worth has gone up during that time. If they all took it out, he would lose all of it. If we had a big stock market crash, the next correction is probably going to be 40 to 50%. We day trade every day, by the way. We have a day trading class that we're... That we're um, and also the next crash probably going to be with a downturn of 40 to 50 percent. Jeff Bezos would would lose about 40 percent of his total net worth would be gone in the span of a couple months because it's not doesn't it doesn't even actually exist. 
in, in the first place. It's not tied to the profits because you can look at a company like Uber who has never made a profit ever. They have never had a profitable quarter, profitable year. Their CEO, when they went public, said he does not think that they will ever make a profit, ever. They're worth $70 billion. Try to you know, add those two up. He doesn't think they will ever be profitable. Uber has never profited money off of their drivers at all. They lose money every time someone takes a trip, yet they're worth $70 billion purely because millions of people have decided to freely put their money, their investments into the public stock market in the form of Uber shares. So you could make the argument that they've stolen $70 billion worth of wealth from their drivers, but in all actuality, they've never made a dollar off their drivers, ever. All of the money that they're worth is from 401ks, pension plans, and IRAs, things like that. Hedge funds. Hedge funds. Hedge funds are a really <clears throat> big thing that the reason that the wealth is exploding so much. You have a lot of companies who have never made a profit, who all of these people are investing millions, billions of dollars in, exploding the worth of those companies even though they've never made any money. That's why the next bubble pop could be really, could be really, really bad, um, because it's a lot of this new wealth is based on debt. Obviously, it's based on valuing companies that have no profit behind them whatsoever. If I told you that Charlie and I had never profited a dollar on our healthcare software company, how much would you tell me the company is worth? You guys probably wouldn't think the company's worth anything, right? If we were negative two hundred million dollars. Would you tell me it's worth $70 billion? <laughs> no, no, but that's what Uber is right there. So when we talk about the wealth gap, people have to first realize that's not liquid money anyway. Jeff Bezos can't get $130 billion. If he tried, he wouldn't be able to. I'm sure he's got plenty, but I don't think he would be able to actually take out more than 30 or 40 they would still be mad about the 30 or 40. Jeff Bezos today just announced that he's going to donate $10 billion to fight climate change. The article that I read about it noted that that was only 7% of his net worth. They're never gonna be happy with, with any of it. $10 billion to, to fight it. And the article had to point out that, well, this is only 7% of his net worth. So that there's no number that anyone's gonna be happy with until it's zero. That's, that's really, that's what they want his worth to be. So, and although they won't point out that Bernie Sanders only donated 1.5% of his net worth, <laughs> which is yeah. way less, right? Yeah. Uh, what's another but, one? Well, I want to say a couple things about that too, because I think there's a couple things when I hear wealth inequality, um, you know, obviously saying not caring isn't a great answer to your friend, although it is true. You don't care because as Nate said, it's not a zero sum game. It's not wealth. Isn't this finite pie that, only a certain amount of people are going to have and no one else gets. Um, one of the things we talked about on the podcast today and, and from uh, Fee, which is a great organization, <clears throat> is not only are the rich getting richer, but the poor are getting a lot richer at a way faster rate. And, and nobody's quantified that, right? Because if uh, poor people have a standard of living increase of, let's say, 10 standard deviations from where they were 10 years ago, so each year they get one standard deviation richer. Um, how do you quantify that among a mass amount of people where it's very easy to quantify Jeff Bezos went from, hey, worth 80 billion to now he's worth 120 billion. So 
and the other thing is, I would say that those who complain about wealth inequality or any inequality to begin with, and I like what Jordan Peterson says on this, is they actually don't take the problem serious enough because it's a way deeper problem than just money. Like inequality is the exact structure of nature. There's nothing to, you can do about it. I'm 6'8". Nate's only 6'2". That's not fair, right? <laughs> you have long flowing locks of hair and I'm going bald. This isn't fair, right? You know, like you could take any example that you want that, and you can say, well, this person has the uh, athletic talent and ability and this person's really book smart or whatever. We're all very, one thing that blows my mind is the left love to t loves to talk about diversity, but yet they don't fully embrace it because it's our diversity is what makes us uh, strong, independent, and free people, which allows us to provide value to the market in a way that no one else can. And so why do we want to make everyone equal? They don't take the problem seriously enough. Inequality is a good thing. Like it's a good thing you and I don't think the same, we don't look the same, we don't have the same desires or goals because we can have a different impact on the structure of reality in a more positive way than if we were all doing the same thing together. And it'd be so boring if we were all equal. Like how much would that suck? You know, we all have the same name, we wear the same clothes, we drive the same cars, you know, we hit the same potholes. Like it, we all date the same girlfriend, we all date the same guy. It'd be so boring. So I don't understand this, um, this I, what I would approach some, especially somebody from the left, when they talk about wealth inequality, I would take them deeper into a discussion of equality as a whole and ask them why they hate diversity so much. You know, and so try to relate to them on that because the left loves diversity. And so one, they don't take the problem seriously enough. And when it comes to wealth inequality, there's always going to be inequality. There's a thing called the Pareto distribution. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's an economic and mathematical uh, distribution. It's a basically a almost a Laffer curve. And it's even talked about in the Bible, the Matthew principle, right? To those who have everything, more will be given. From those who have nothing, everything will be taken. And so... What happens is, and an easy example of this is in the market, you know, if I have a million dollars invested and the stock market goes up 10%, I'm going to make $100,000. If I have $100,000 invested and the stock market goes up 10%, I'm only going to make 10 grand. Well, inequality. Well, you didn't have as much, so you didn't have as much invested. So as the economy booms, the people who have more money, they can make more because the percentage of that amount of money obviously is going to be more money than the percentage of amount of money that you have in there. But the goal is not... Um, it's not to steal from the rich. Margaret Thatcher always said, I love this. She said, you would rather the poor be poorer as long as the rich were less rich because there's always going to be rich people. There's always going to be the 1%. It doesn't matter how you swing it. Even in communist societies like Soviet Russia or whatever, there were the people who were in charge that lived like kings. The Castro's daughter is the richest person in Venezuela. She's worth like $4 billion dollars. Or sorry, Chavez. Castro's from Cuba. <laughs> I do know. I know my geography, but uh, Chavez, his daughter, the you know uh, Chavez brought in socialism into Venezuela. You could say, and he passed away. And now it's Maduro. But Chavez's daughter is worth four billion dollars because they funneled a lot of the state money into private accounts for her. There's always going to be a one percent. It's either going to be done by force or it's going to be done through freedom. So, another question. Uh 
stuff that I can put up with, I feel like. And I feel like with Bloomberg or someone like that, it's like, I mean, look at his time in New York. It would just be like a prison. Yeah. Like you said, a prison. That is his ideal. So is that really, the, so is the Sanders sort of faction the best uh, target for libertarians at this so, you're, and so I think you're kind of alluding to the shift of a lot of Ron Paul supporters that that whole wave. Like half, so you guys seen a lot of Ron half Paul of them went over to, to Bernie to Bernie Sanders. Um, Bernie is right on a couple things. I mean, obviously, like there, there's I could probably find a few things I agree with with almost any political candidate. I mean, Trump's right on a few things, right? Obama was right on a few things. Um, one. So he's right on, let, let's say, foreign policy, possibly, because he doesn't think that we should be in a bunch of wars. Although the last few presidents have all ran on getting us out of wars. And when they get in there, all they do is continue them. You know, Obama bombed more people than Bush did. And then Trump is now bombing more people than Obama did, although he has done some moves to pull the troops away. Um, but we don't stop the actual, uh, let's say, foreign invasion. We still have... Uh, 900 bases in like 150 countries it's just and we spend almost a trillion dollars well, when we uh, do remove troops we just replace them with independent contractors anyway. right they're not they're not actually our presence isn't gone so what i would say on that is i agree with bernie on the anti-war stance in, totally in on fed. that um he does he said he wants to audit 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 the fed uh, I, I don't know if he's talked about actually getting rid of it um decriminalizing drugs what i would say is and we can look this up uh, control over economies has killed more people than anything else in, in history. You can look it up. How many millions of people have died because they were not able to be free and live their own lives, have their own markets, make their own living. So while I agree with the you know, if, if you wanted to use the 100 million statistic from socialism, communism, you've got all kinds of other stuff throughout history where people were not allowed to make their own free decisions in, in the way that they lived their lives and the way that they made money or anything like that. Aside from maybe a few pandemics, like the Black Plague. <laughs> yeah. Or the flu back in we'll like have 1850. to look at all the numbers back then because then you have to go all throughout history where people were not allowed to thrive whatsoever and True. ended up dying through starvation or through, uh, you know, any type of denial of individual liberties and, and their ability to do that. You could look all throughout history and probably come up with a, with a number on that. I do not think that Bernie's stance on decriminalization or anti-war outweighs the damage that would be done from his economic policies. I, that, is, that is what I would say. I completely agree with decriminalizing drugs, but if you look at all these people, uh, if you look at poverty as something that you, that you really care about, uh, you look at people being able to lift themselves up and actually not be dependent on other people, if you want to actually solve all of those problems, well, I agree that decriminalization is a major thing. I definitely support that. Um, I wouldn't take that over absolutely horrific economics. I, I, just, I just wouldn't if I had to weigh out the whole thing. Uh, because I think that that's I think that it's far more dangerous. So. Also, to his point, um, I feel like there are very few leaders out there, and they 
whatever millions of dollars which he's thrown at tons of money which is yeah. kind of uplifting because with all that money like he has barely bought himself any support um but i mean i feel like even if you could find one of his supporters somewhere out there i guess um it would be very easy to like because when you get talking to like bernie supporters at a certain point it gets down to philosophy like they say oh taxation is a theft because you know the social contract and that, at that point you're really arguing something that's really deep and i feel like that's more difficult than you know the bloomberg is just so <laughs> you just ask you know soda tax like what, like that's so easy to just be like no like yeah why so i feel like at a certain point like arguing with people who disagree with you like on philosophy and things like that is a lot more difficult than just you know the really ridiculous what are you also making an argument of viability meaning you know, voting for the Libertarian this election in 2020 is not going to get us anywhere. And so if you're looking at the most Liberty candidate, are you making an argument that Bernie would be the most Libertarian candidate because he stands for these few things that we could that could actually well, win an election? I'm saying that, like, he would be preferable. In my view, I think he would be preferable to a Bloomberg type where he's just sort of a down. Yeah. On everything. Whereas Bernie, there are like a couple things where he's, you know, being an ex hippie from Vermont gives some reasonable yeah. perspective. If if the if the thinking is just on the is on the anti war and the anti drugs, and I would agree, he's very much less authoritarian. But all of the other things that he wants, if, if everything else other than those that I can think about, I think I agree with him. Mostly on his uh, stance against cash bail. Also, we a we actually we run a website called BernieLies.com, uh, where we literally that's all we talk about uh, on that website all the time. And we posted support of Bernie's stance on cash bail on that on that website because we wanted to be truthful. Uh, I don't think that you should be uh, sitting in jail because you don't have enough money to pay for your bail. I, I don't think it's a good idea. Someone want to come in? Or someone just say that? It's Reagan? Yeah. Hey, what's up? Hey. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we totally agree on those things. The biggest issue I see with Bernie, it's something we talk about a lot, is make sure that in your idea of what Bernie could bring to the U.S. doesn't look anything like Scandinavia whatsoever. Because... That's simply that's simply not possible. You could I can make all kinds of arguments for why that's not possible, but he actually makes the best arguments because none of his economic policies look like any of Scandinavia's policies whatsoever. Um, he has what their outcomes are. He okay, free healthcare, free college, free whatever that you pay for. Uh, he's got all all of these things. Those aren't economic policies. Those are results of potentially successful economic policies. But those aren't policies. Those are things that you would get if your economics went really well. So he wouldn't actually support anything that has to do with any of the policies in Denmark whatsoever. Uh, so when he says, oh, I'm not talking about Venezuela, I'm talking about Denmark, I don't see any evidence of that whatsoever. Denmark's got a 22% corporate tax rate, which he doesn't support because that's what we just lowered ours down to. Uh, they don't have a wealth tax. They don't technically have a minimum wage. They, they are negotiated through unions. Um, they, 
they don't have a stock trade tax to the point that he is talking about. Um, they've got a six, the, the middle class and the wealthy pay the same top tax bracket. Once you're in the middle class, they pay the same rate. There's $50,000 a year. Yeah, you're paying the same rate. doesn't matter if you're making $20 million a year. You pay the same, you pay the same rate. So there's essentially a flat tax after you get into the middle class. Bernie doesn't support any of their policies whatsoever, but he's somehow able to paint this picture to the people who follow him that he wants to usher in a Denmark-style socialism. And through everything I've looked at, I don't see any I don't see any support from him for the policies that they used to actually be able to do those things. He's got the exact opposite ideology as they do. They have low taxes on say production. They've got low corporate taxes, low regulation, and then really high taxes on the people. And Bernie's ideology is exactly the opposite, yet he's saying that we're going to get the exact same result. And I, I just don't see any any evidence that he's going to be able to do that, especially when you talk about something like Denmark that has a lower population than the city of New York and is the size of West Virginia. The idea that all of a sudden we're just going to implement what that country has over 2,000 miles of borders and 330 million people, and it's not going to lose efficiency, and we're going to run it just like they do, it, it doesn't make any sense. If he wanted to make an argument, he should say that we should have New York City should have free health care and free college, and let's see how that works, and, and we'll run it like Denmark. That's an accurate comparison if he wants to do that. But saying that we're going to implement a Scandinavian style, a Nordic model, which he does not model. He only models what their outcomes are, not the policies they use to get there. If we're going to implement the Nordic model, then you're going to have to do that on the very, very small scale. And I would support that if it was, if you know, I'm not going to live in that city. And if anyone wants to move out of that city, that's fine. But hey, let's at least try it in one city first. One city. See if it works in one city. Because that's a comparison to Scandinavia right there. And if we can't get it to work in one city, then how do we think we're going to apply it to three? I mean, California's got more people than Canada does. You know, it's, California's got more people than Australia does. None of these countries compare in size and you lose efficiency the bigger that you get, especially through our government. And what I would say to a Bernie supporter is, if you love all of Bernie's plans, you trust him, you think he's a really good person, you think he's gonna do everything, you know, a lot of things that you really like, okay, you want him to have control over healthcare and education and the economy and all these things, can you tell me who the president after him is going to be? And if you can't tell me that, then I cannot support the office of the president gaining all of those powers. Because, uh, huh? <laughs> yeah, so maybe it's you, so maybe they think they're, and maybe they think they'll be able to do it, but all of the powers you want Bernie Sanders to have, are you okay with Donald Trump Jr. having all of those powers? The, pro the answer is probably no. So then why do you want to give the executive branch those powers? Why do you want to give the government those powers? That's not a good long, when's the last time we got one political party and then we had that political party forever? That's, that's not something that's going to happen at all. Even if you got healthcare, look at what Trump's been able to do to Obamacare over the last few years. He's dismantled it a little piece by piece. He hasn't repealed and replaced, but he's basically rendered it ineffective through little pieces of executive orders. The Republicans going to get in and do that to whatever Medicare for all is. There's the idea, our government is not built for long-term plans. 
We change out people two, four, six years. It's not long term. What do you got? So this kind of goes back to like the original of Bloomberg versus uh, Bernie. It seems like a lesser of two evils kind of thing. Mm -hmm. my, my rebuttal to that is always a lesser of two evils is still evil. Mm -hmm. Like anytime I talk to my family about not liking Trump, they're like, well, would you rather Hillary? No, I wouldn't. So I mean, how would you say to go about answering that? I have a different answer on this, and I'll let Charlie give his too. Um, I get caught up in the lesser of two evils argument practically, but then philosophically I completely agree that the lesser of two evils is still evil. Completely agree. Libertarians also have to realize that the lesser of three evils is still evil also. So we, have, we also have to realize that. But I always say this, we're all in a boat, we're all in a boat together, we're out on the ocean, and we need to get back to shore because the boat's sinking. You got. Say the, say the Democrats were just going to be politically biased here. Say the Democrats, it's a wooden boat. They're taking an axe and just chopping holes in the bottom of the boat right now, trying to sink it down to the bottom of the ocean. You know, the bottom of the ocean is death, communism, same thing. <laughs> so they're trying to chop holes in the bottom of it. Republicans, most of them are chopping, yet with hatchets instead of massive axes. And then a few of them are going around trying to plug some of the holes. Others are building walls around the boat. Others are trying, yeah. <laughs> Others are, yeah. Okay, so they're doing that. Some of them are plugging it, although they're doing it slower than what the Democrats are probably, although, you know, we don't agree with all, all the different things. And then the Libertarians are up there making speeches about how we should all be on our own boats. And the answer is, how do you actually get back to shore so you... Uh, don't kill 100 million people. And so if I was going to ask myself, what could buy me the most time to get this message out to the most amount of people, because we need some more time, then I can rationally convince myself that the lesser of two evils, although still evil, <laughs> is still better than the other evil, and that's that's the lesser of two evils argument. So I understand it completely. So you voted for Trump? No, I did not vote for Trump. <laughs> no, I did not. I uh, did not whatsoever. I, I I wrote in Rand Paul in the last election. <laughs> so no, I didn't. But listen, philosophically, I completely disagree with what I just said. <laughs> okay, that's important to know. Practically, and whether or not people like us need some more time to fix this before it's too late. I can, I, I can make the argument that go with whoever is going to buy you the, the, the most time. It's not completely obvious that that's Trump. There's plenty of things anti-liberty that, that, that Trump is doing. But my focus is always economics. That's, that's what I focus on all the time. I think economics is the most important thing because it's killed so many people when it's done poorly. And so my main focus goes on economics. Uh, and so therefore I do make a lot of my personal feelings off of who I think has the better economic policy. I don't know. That's a, just a terrible non-principled argument. I would make a, I make a different argument and see, this is where we can still be friends and we disagree. Um, I think voting your conscience, conscience matters because I believe that as I, as I mentioned before, like people follow heroes. They follow people who stand for something. 
You know, like, why did Ron Paul gain such a gigantic following? It's not because of just what he said. It's because he actually believed in what he said, and he actually stood up for things even when people called him a lunatic. And, you know, I, I remember back in the debates when he, you know, similar to Bernie Sanders, had a lot of support in the, in the you know, the, RN, the, the RNC. I guess, I guess it's the RNC. Yes. Yeah. The same ilk that the DNC has for, for Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is not going to win the nomination, even though he probably has the most support. They're not going to let him do it. It'll be Bloomberg or Buttigieg. And that's my, that's my I guess you'd say, edu- educated guess. I don't think it matters. Because he's too radical. And, and, it, and I think if it came down to a national election where it is Bernie versus Trump, Bernie's not going to win. There's just no way he's too radical. Because when you go talk to most Americans, most Americans are actually libertarians. <laughs> like they want to be left alone and they don't want people to hurt other people and they don't think people should take other people's stuff. And they want their potholes fixed and they want their kids to go to nice schools and that's it. They don't care. I mean, Jesus, half the voting populace doesn't even vote. You know, it's like you have a, you know, almost 200 million people that can vote and you only get 100 million of those people to vote. So most, of, most people don't even care about politics that much. The second thing I would say is, to me, voting your conscience matters every single time because you have to be able to go to sleep at night. And I don't think, in at least in my own view, that I could sleep at night knowing that I could potentially have attributed to some sort of system that killed a bunch of people. Um, and so to me... The lesser two uh, evil argument uh, doesn't bode well. Um, but at the same time, we're in a very fortunate position in America because we are lucky enough that our founders set up a government in a way where I believe the federal election is not that important anyway. Young Americans for Liberty has a right by focusing on state legislators. The more local that you can get, the better off you are. And you saw this play out in Virginia, by the way. The Virginia legislator trying to pass all kinds of gun laws and all this stuff, you had tens of thousands of patriots show up with armed weapons, not a single shot fired. But the message came across very, very clearly. And actually, they just defeated. I just read an article today. We didn't have time to go over it on the podcast, but the the uh, the assault weapon ban didn't even make it out of Senate committee. So where it was a surefire pass didn't even make it out of Senate committee. So the message was heard loud and clear. So when it comes down to federal election, like even if I'm not saying that Bernie Sanders or even Trump or whoever else, I'm not saying that they couldn't affect some things, but when it comes down to local level and when, when we actually talk about losing our, our rights that are, um, let's say like the second amendment or first amendment or something like that. I don't think local governments would allow that to happen. We talk about all the time. We have 50 separate countries. If we want to try some of these policies. You try it in California or Oregon or Montana or whatever. We were designed in a way where we had 50 sovereign States at the time it was only 13, but now we have 50 sovereign States that came together to form a union to do a couple specific things so that we were stronger as a nation, although Virginia got to do what they wanted and Florida could do what they wanted and Illinois, God knows they do what they want, right? And so you could try these different experiments out because massive social change is very complicated and hard. And so in my estimation, 
I don't think I could ever vote for the lesser of two evils, although I thoroughly enjoyed watching Trump win in 2016 because it was hilarious. Um, (laughs) But how much effect has Trump really had on your life? I mean, you know, even tax breaks, like there wasn't that much of a difference for, for the majority of people. Like it wasn't that much different from Obama and Obama wasn't that much different from Bush and you know, you see all these production helped me after I got married. I will say that. Yeah. The standard. Yeah. Yeah. For all you married folk out there. (laughs) Um, but, but there's not been much change and you look over the last like 50 years, it's been Republican, Democrat, whatever the federal level hasn't had that much significant impact. I would think on, uh, actual Liberty. I think it's, you're much better to pursue it at a local and state level where you have a much louder voice. Although all of the media pays attention to is federal. Go ahead. Um, this doesn't have to do with that, but a really big thing now is like the environment, and I think for good reason. But um, a lot of people point out that like the incentives that exist in the free market uh, for rapid economic growth would most likely tend towards not really paying attention so much to environmental concerns, and so they justify we need to do something, but they don't really like say what something is. Yeah, so, like, is there, do you think, like, a, an easy way to, like, you know, kind of think about how the free market can take care of that more easily? Yes, it's already doing it. <laughs> I, just, I just posted yeah. a bunch of stuff on so, this. So, yeah, this is a great argument. So people will always use fear to try to control. And so you look at, for instance, the Green New Deal, right? All it is is a way to just steal as much money as possible by using the fear of climate change and environmental protections. So, um, again, this comes from Jordan Peterson, but it also comes from uh, uh, Bajorn Longberg. They have done studies where they actually say the best, um, the best results that they can see, and this comes from UN studies, where people start to take care of the environment is where they can raise their GDP up to about $5,000 a year. So if, if actually you focus on economic success, success, once you raise people's income to above $5,000 a year, they actually start to care about the environment. So that's one thing. The second thing I would say, the free market has done more to save the environment, although there are examples of corporations dumping into rivers or whatever, which is obviously wrong. Um, but those, those things that they do wrong do have negative impacts towards their company and other things. But at the same time, the economic success of people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, for instance, donated $10 billion. The the free market is much more efficient at tackling these problems than government ever could be. We have, And so it's not that we shouldn't take care of the environment. It's that individuals in the free market should do it rather than handing over the problem to government. Milton Friedman always said that if you give an economic or if you give a market failure to a government, it just becomes government failure. The government doesn't fix it, right? We always have this illusion in our minds that if uh, somehow people in government, that's all they are, people, are somehow more superior to make these types of decisions than people in the market. It's You have to ask yourself, who actually creates the most amount of efficiency and value and everything like that in, in society? Is it the government elite or is it actually people in the free market? And the answer is always the free market. It's because people are, are they're not controlled 
centrally or through any type of fiat or uh, regulations or anything like that. They're free to explore and come up with new ideas. I think Bill Gates has done more for the environment in the last 10 years than governments ever have in their entire existence and with less money. One thing, um, one thing for, uh, I was going to say something about, we don't recognize how amazing GMOs have been that a lot of people hate them. They're just terrible, right? They're really bad for you. If it would not have been for GMOs increasing the yield on crops, we would have to, we would have to take out about 6 billion acres of trees right now to grow enough food for all of the people that we have. So you can't completely deny what some of the capitalistic things have uh, have done to actually help the environment. Thanks for coming, man. We appreciate it. Um, what some of these capitalistic things have actually done to help the environment. We can look at all the bad things, but then we have this issue where the good things are just not real easy to see, but, but they do exist. Bill Gates had a thing, I was going to say, Bill Gates had a thing last week. You guys hear about Bill Gates's world-saving invention that he released last week? I saw about one or two news stories about it last week. So he, uh, they released, I can't remember the name of the company, a solar mirror technology that came out last week. He, they found a way to harness solar power and mirrors to create a heat that was 1,000 degrees, which is enough to melt steel and make concrete and do all of these things, and he can actually do it cheaper than the cost that we pay for fossil fuels right now with the technology as it is right now. And hardly anyone said anything about it. I, I saw a couple news stories about it. That means all of the manufacturing that used, we use to make steel and concrete, and all kinds of things, could be replaced at a cheaper price with something that is completely carbon neutral. Uh, he said doing that would reduce our CO2 emissions by 25% once that's all, the, the world's CO2 emissions by 25% using this technology. He's also got the uh, nuclear reactor that he put a lot of, uh, a lot of money into, uh, something called the traveling wave reactor that he spent a bunch of money investing into a company, was it TerraPower that made that? Yes. I can't, yeah. So they created a nuclear reactor that actually runs off of depleted uranium, not enriched uranium. And the uranium that is currently sitting in Paducah, Kentucky, is enough uranium on that technology to power the United States for 300 years. It's just sitting there right now. No one, we can't do anything with it because the restrictions on nuclear power are too, are too tight. He also made a way where the core is actually a liquid metal around it. Um, basically, it can't, it can't overheat. These things like Fukushima and uh, Chernobyl you're talking about places that were on like 1940s or 50s slide rule tech computer technology when they overheated. Fukushima, uh, they lost power. They put a bunch of generators on the power plant uh, right next to a flood wall next to the ocean. And then they had a tsunami and all the generators got swamped and then they lost what they were using to cool the, the, uh, the reactor. So we can point to a couple things that have gone really poorly and say nuclear power is a terrible option. But they could, they've actually been, I was going to say they can be fixed, they've, they've been fixed. Uh, Bill Gates was building this reactor in China until uh, the trade rules got put into effect last year and they, the actually, banned, shut him they actually banned uh, him doing any business with China and he had to shut down the reactor he was building. So he was trying to build a, a concept test reactor to power uh, this area in China and 
as an American company, he's not allowed to, to do it now. So they're, they're trying to get away from that. There's something really simple, like in Australia, they found out that if you mix 2% of cattle feed into their, if you 2% of uh, Algae. seaweed into the cattle feed, uh, then it reduces the cow's methane emissions by 97% at a 2% mixture rate in their cattle feed in a naturally occurring sea, seaweed that grows off the coast of California. It would cost almost nothing to, to implement. And it Was would actually, it would almost reduce all of the cattle emissions. So there's all these things that people What's have come up trees? with. A, a billion trees? If we planted a billion trees... Yeah, it would cost about a hundred billion dollars or something like that, or fifty billion dollars. I can't remember the exact story, but we have enough room to do it too. But we could plant a billion trees; it would cost fifty or a hundred billion dollars, and that would actually be enough to actually take all of the carbon that we've introduced into the air. Well, then you have all the so, carbon capture technology, also that no one really wants to pay attention to. There's all kinds of stuff, and then getting our minds right on the fact. I was listening to a Thomas Sowell book called Economic Facts and Fallacies the other day. Really good book if you guys want to listen to it. I did not realize that less than, I think it was around 5% of the United States is developed. The rest of it is all just open, just land with trees and fields and all kinds of stuff on it. So we have this mentality that you can look out the windows here and see that we're overpopulated and the cities are destroying everything when actually 90% of the country is undeveloped still. You can tell if you get in an airplane and look out the window that, that, that's, that that's true. Um, so we have to remember that too. I think the free market is solving the problem. Look what Elon Musk did with Tesla. Elon Musk cares about the environment. He cares about climate change. He wants to stop all this. Electric cars or were seen as, you know, stupid, dorky, you know, just awful things that were slow and looked terrible. And he said, I want to make it really cool and I want to make it really fast and I want to make it even faster than all the big muscle cars and all that stuff. So people change their mindset about what an electric car can be. And now he's got all kinds of competition trying to make that better than him. In 10 years, we'll all be able to afford a Tesla. We'll be able to afford a Tesla that's out there right now, used, which he says can, can last for 40 or 50 years, we'll see. Um, he says a lot of stuff, um, but he says they can let, you know, in 10 years. High on weed, yeah, normally he's probably high as hell when he says it, but the free market is fixing it. I think simply we're just not paying attention to all these things. The Bill Gates invention from last week, I was able to find one news story about it that was posted by CNN, surprisingly enough, and then I didn't hear anything else about it. Yeah, and then oh, you yeah. got, and then she's nominated for, you know, she's the Nobel. person of the year, Nobel Peace Prize, all this stuff. But we're ignoring things that, coincidentally enough, do not require massive government bureaus or really big hikes in taxation or a hundred thousand new pages of regulation or all of this stuff. We're ignoring things that don't require that, and only looking at things that would require that. And so. I think the free market has an incentive to fix these things, especially as people care about it more and more. People like that. I mean, even hardcore right-wing conservatives care about the environment being clean and everything. They might not believe that climate change is a thing whatsoever, but Elon Musk said, what did he say? 
He said there's, got, there's something to be said for taking carbon out of the ground and putting it into the air. You can just think that that's probably not like the best thing in the world. I'm not saying that we're heading towards a catastrophe. In 1974, uh, Newsweek magazine ran an article talking about how we must immediately cover the northern ice caps in soot to melt them to stop the impending ice age. That was their plan on the scientific consensus. If you look up a Newsweek magazine, it was called, um, it was the coming ice age or some, something like that. Um, their plan from their scientists was that we needed to cover the northern ice caps in soot so they would heat up and melt because they were getting too big and that we were going to be moving in, into an ice age. Can you imagine if we would have completely followed blindly the scientific consensus at, at, at that time? What position we might be in right now where we're saying the exact opposite thing is true. So all I'm saying is I don't think the problem is as bad as we think it is. I don't think it's a good thing to put all the stuff into the air, but I, I do not think that the government is the most efficient thing to stop that from happening. I think if it were up to them, I mean, good Lord, we just moved the nuclear launch codes off of three and a half floppy A disks like last year sometime. So I don't think that they're going to be the people. Actually, I think they're still on it. Are they? Yeah, they're <laughs> probably security. still on it. Yeah, for security reasons, <laughs> which you can partially understand. They're not really, you know, they're solid. You can't hack into them or anything like that. Whatever. Could use a USB drive. But anyway, that doesn't matter. So, you know, I don't think that that is the person to let. I think if we had the total government control over those things, we would be in much worse shape right now than what we've had through capitalism. Because I think whatever the technology was in 1920, we'd have about five years more than that technology right now, and we'd be in a much worse shape than what, than what we are currently. Uh, we've been able to develop a way to feed 7.7 .7 billion people and actually have a massive obesity problem. And, and we still, we're, we're, we're growing, you know, we're creating all these ways to solve the problems as we go along. I just think no one's paying attention to it at all. What's funny, what's funny about that is we actually do now have more obesity than we do have starving people. So just think about that. Just start try to fathom that in your mind. Whatever, like if you believe in evolution or maybe you don't, I said this on the podcast today even because we were talking about there's never been a better time to be alive. You know, whether we've been around 15,000 years or 10 million years or whatever, almost all of human history has been privation and just trying to survive. In 1820, 94% of the people lived in, in abject poverty, which is less than $1.90 a day, and that's adjusted for relative time periods, right? So could you imagine? I mean, you spent most of your days just trying to survive, like trying not to die. Rockefeller was the richest person in the 1800s and early 1900s, but his kids died because they he couldn't afford antibiotics, not because he didn't have the money, because antibiotics didn't exist. So it didn't matter how much money you had in the late 1800s. like. The life-saving technology and things that we've been able to accomplish because of free market capitalism it has made the world richer than ever. People living in poverty today in America are richer than 99% of other humans that have existed in the world. So there's never been a better time to be alive. And when we talk about – to wrap all this up because we're coming up on an hour and a half here. To wrap all of this up, individuals are really good at solving problems. And the ideas that we advocate and we espouse and the, the principles that we live out every single day pursuing and advancing liberty 
is what allows individuals the most freedom, the most wealth, the most opportunity to solve problems. There's no greater, there, there is no greater ideology that allows people like Bill Gates to amass the amount of wealth that he has to solve climate change by himself, or Jeff Bezos to amounts to to amass the amount of wealth that he has to be able to donate ten billion dollars for somebody else to solve climate change. The government would or spend for, all of Bill Gates's wealth in eight days, by the way. Right. On what? All, on all what? Like, look, I, you know, as a business owner, we have to stroke a check for taxes. Most people just get it taken out of their paychecks. And, you you know, you look at the amount of money you pay in taxes. And, and again, people are going to take this as like, oh, well, he just doesn't want to pay taxes. But I'm like, no, what am I actually getting in return for all of this? Like, I could have hired, we could have hired one to three people, depending on how much we wanted to pay them for our company, had we had not paid the taxes we have to pay. I mean, think about all the jobs. We did the math, by the way. We averaged uh, $500 billion in corporate taxes, could provide 10 million people with a $50,000 a year job. So like 10 million people, we could have 10 million jobs that pay you $50,000 a year if it wasn't for the 500 billion in corporate taxes, which is actually higher than that. It's, yeah. it's more than that. But we just did a simple number because it's like, it's hard to quantify what you don't see happening. But this all boils down to the reason we believe in liberty so much is because individuals are good at solving problems. Individuals need the freedom to create wealth, not only for themselves and their families to make themselves better, but also to advance their ideas, to provide value to society that ultimately make us all richer. I mean, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are in competition right now to see who can provide the cheapest, best internet to every single person in the world. How, like, what kind of world do we live in? It's just amazing. They're arguing over who's going to get the most amount of satellites into space so that people in sub-Saharan Africa can get high-speed internet for $30 a month. It's amazing. It's absolutely astonishing. And if we take all of their wealth, then we have nobody to be able to do that. And to me, that's just a sad world. I don't want to live in that world. So that's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you guys very much. We're hanging out, guys. Thank you.